Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to Matthew chapter 20 once again as we continue our series in Matthew. Just going to read this passage tonight and be referring to a couple of parallel passages later on. We'll just read verses 17 through 19 of Matthew chapter 20. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Thus far we read this passage in the inspired word of God. This will be our text this evening. The text, in fact, records the third time that Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. There are other allusions to his death and resurrection, but there's especially three times, and this is the third time. There's a clear reference to the coming demise of Jesus and the coming conquering of Jesus of death by Jesus over the grave. Three things are predicted in this prophecy. Number one, Jesus will be delivered to the Jews and Gentiles who will cruelly treat him, try him, and deliver him to death. Second, he will be crucified. And third, the third day, he will rise from the dead. In the middle of all of this instruction, as we've been seeing on discipleship, this is, in fact, the most important part of it. There's been much said of discipleship for followers of Jesus. They have been learning, for example, the great cost of discipleship, leaving all and so on. In this lesson, however, when Jesus predicts his death and crucifixion and resurrection, they are learning the lesson of, the, of what their discipleship cost Jesus. And this, you see, is the most important thing that anyone could ever learn of grace and of righteousness and of the power of godliness. Second, they learn the most important thing of Jesus' ministry and the focus of all of his coming on earth, and that's his death and resurrection. In fact, we could say that all of the miracles and instruction of Jesus would be as nothing if it were not for his instruction in his death and resurrection, and in fact, in his actual death and resurrection. This is why he came, to suffer, to die for our sins, and to rise from the dead. Besides in this learning, this instruction, as it will be tonight, we pray, there is power and instruction, not in pages only, but from on high. Power to take disciples on their journey, who are a bit bewildered now, as the disciples were and as we can be. Power to give us grace and faith to take up our crosses, to die to sin, to participate by faith in Christ's resurrection glories. Here is key instruction and power from on high for learning the basics of discipleship, also then for our being powerful witnesses of the gospel of our Lord. You want to follow Jesus? 
Do you want to follow him even as you receive now the instruction of his instruction? Well, let's come along then, believer, and learn the discipleship that we need in Jesus' death and resurrection. Two things, or three things, the content of this discipling, the manner in which Jesus disciples the disciples now and us too, and then the power that comes with this instruction. What Jesus predicts here, you can hardly say it's a prediction, certainly not like a prediction of the weather. This is a prophecy. But what he prophesies of is of his demise at the hands of wicked men. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will betrayed, be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, Romans, to mock and to scourge and to crucify. Yes, indeed. If you flip over to chapter 21, your Bibles, you note that this is almost the beginning of the Passion Week of Jesus, and it's all about his suffering and his being in every way maligned, misunderstood, and maltreated. He's betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. There's a mock trial before the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the Jews of that day, alluded to when Jesus speaks of his betrayal to the chief priests and to the scribes. That's a reference to the 70 who were the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. With great power did, uh, did they wield their sword and, and establish and enforce their laws. They were feared among the Jews. There would be mock trial by this Sanhedrin, no justice even among those who were supposed to exhibit the righteousness of God. Then there'd be this deliverance to the Romans, whose soldiers would treat them as soldiers do their prisoners, with cruelty and contempt, crowning thorns on him, giving him a scepter, putting a purple robe on him to, uh, to mock his kingship. It'd be the shame then, after Pilate delivers him to the people, to the mob, the shame, the pain, the crucifixion between two thieves and murderers, Jesus in the midst. Here is, in fact, in this listing of Jesus of what shall happen to him, here is a revelation once again of the sin of man the sinfulness of the sin of man. Even as at the beginning, Eve and then Adam, and then this whole world denied the truth of God and his holiness, and that he is the judge and ought to be obeyed, denied his threat of punishment, believed the lie of the devil that they would be God, so here it is. Here's the word, the truth of God in the word incarnate, the word that he speaks at the end of time, which is the fulfillment of all the other words that have been spoken. Here is the mouthpiece of God, the communication from heaven to earth of truth and righteousness and judgment, love and mercy, all the wonderful things that God has to speak to this world. 
and liars are there contradicting that truth. He endured the contradiction of sinners, did Jesus, Hebrews tells us. And so here, in his demise, in his going the way of death at the hands of wicked men, you think of this, the effrontery that they're showing here, the brazenness, truth and light, the light of heaven is revealed, and they're shutting their eyes to it, even as they did from the very beginning, but here, especially as the communication of Jesus, of just who he is and what he will do, is, is, is made clear to the people, even though they are ignorant yet. These are fools, in fact, treating the wisdom of God as a fool, even as we know this gospel is a stumbling block and foolishness to Jews and Greeks. Their spitting on the pure Son of God is a pretense of abhorrence of the blasphemy that they're accusing him who claimed he was the Son of God. Everything about sin is revealed here. And this is a time to pause and think about what this world is all about, because this world is heirs of that world 2,000 years ago and far away. People do not contend earnestly for the truth, but for the lie. People reject the wisdom of the Bible for the wisdom of scientists and philosophers and anyone else who can claim that this and that is the explanation for that and this, and there's no God in the picture. This is the Babylonian wisdom, foolery, and rejection of God and his kingdom, right here. And this is what we're seeing today. And there's no recourse to the word of God. There's no pointing us and no pointing of the legislators and others who are governors over us to what is true and what is right, except they go to their constitutions and twist and turn and uh, whatever that means, there's no constitution of the Bible. So here it is right here. The Son of Man in flesh, the wisdom of God in the flesh, is being rejected. In fact, it reveals what sin is all about, even as it is a judgment of God. It's the death to which people are subject as they yield to the lie of the devil. Remember this morning we said the devil is the one who has the power of death, not over the sons of God anymore, but he is this one who deceives all, and he makes them fear death. Some strange reason, that's what people do. They fear death, and they don't show it, though, for the most part. They'll just deny that it exists, and they'll go on living, and they'll put it off, and they'll live their lives, because to deny that death exists is really to deny that God exists and that judgment is to come, and to deny the significance of death is not just a withering away and a going the way of all flesh and some occasion for people to have accolades at our funeral. It's judgment day for it's appointed, appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Here is sin, the curse of God, 
the separation from truth. Here are people who are going to manhandle, note that word, that term, manhandle the Son of God. How dare they? They'll mangle him. They'll quibble in their ignorance about his guilt. And about he said this and he said that. And they'll reveal themselves to be, even the Sanhedrin will reveal themselves to be just a part of the mob, the crowd, leading them to say and themselves joining in the crowd's cry, crucify him, crucify him. Perhaps here as well is revealed the greatest sin that we need to remember as a church of Jesus Christ because as the text says and the Son of Man reminds the disciples, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. They were going up to keep the Passover as were many on the road to Jerusalem at this time. It's a law of God that the males would go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices and so on. But what this does is reveal the sinfulness of sinfulness and of sinfulness because it's in the house of God that this rejection occurs. And by those who were to reveal the glories of the great God that this sin of the rejection of God and his Messiah is revealed. The chosen people. with whom God had ever revealed his glory, the glory of his presence in Jerusalem, in the temple. The glory of the kingdom of David, whose king was now come. This people rejects him. And in the name of the people of God, they try to build their own kingdom on the wreckage of this cast out, crucified carcass of this Nazarene, this imposter, this charlatan, this rabble-rouser. Oh, in a thousand ways, the Jerusalem of today shows such contempt of the Savior. You can hardly, hardly say it without being ashamed myself. The sin of God's people even is according to the flesh to deny Jesus. To crucify him of flesh, to grieve his Holy Spirit, to read his word perfunctorily, out of habit, not out of heart and to live like devils or half-devils. Explain to me what that means. All the day long. And to preach another Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible or other Jesuses in addition to Jesus or other doctrines than the doctrine of Jesus and thereby to take away his glory if that were possible. And to have programs that aim at the success of man 
and not at the revelation of the glory of the blood of the Lamb and the resurrection of the Son of God. That's who he is, and this is the second point of this first point here with this content of this message. This Jesus, who's a man, identifies himself as the Son of Man, his favorite name. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, the Son of Man. The rabble will crucify and manhandle Jesus as if he were a man. But little do they know, he's the Son of Man. This is the favorite term of Jesus, and it's used of him 80 times plus in the New Testament, Son of Man. What does that refer to? When Jesus says, children, he's the Son of Man, well, the first thing, he refers to him as a man. He's weak. He's dependent. In all things, he's just a man, except for sin, of course, of man. He has no sin. He's the perfect man. But also, and especially, This title, Son of Man, refers to him as the Messiah, the Savior, the Christos. That's why he's called Jesus Christos or Christ or Christus, Jesus Messiah. Son of Man, in fact, is the the term that Daniel uses in chapter 7 and verses 13, verse 14, to speak of Jesus. Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. He came to God. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." Clearly a reference to Christ in his glory and his kingdom in its glory and it's in eternity. Beautiful. In fact, this is this Jesus who goes to Jerusalem, who has come into this world and comes to Jerusalem according to the eternal decree of God, according to the prophecies of the prophets in Psalm 2. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and so on. Behold, this day I've begotten my son, son of God, comes in the flesh incarnate, born of a woman, conceived of the Holy Spirit, begotten, not made. This is the one, and we spoke of his greatness this morning, following Hebrews, trying to follow Hebrews into the heights of revelation of the greatness of God. He's the one by whom and for whom the worlds were made, Colossians 1, and by whom and for whom also these wicked men were made and allowed to taunt and to tear and to trouble and to kill Jesus that he might accomplish God's purpose to save his elect bride to the glory of his grace. The Son of Man makes all the difference. This is no mere man. He's the Son of Man. He's God's man. And know what he says of himself. He's going to be betrayed. 
going to be condemned to death and delivered to the Gentiles, the Romans, to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. There's a reference to how he would die, how he must die. Because he who is accursed will die on a tree, Deuteronomy says, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the one who dies on a tree, on a cross, as the cursed one, the outcast of heaven, the outcast of earth, and of God's people. Jesus Christ, crucified. And so the deliverance to the Gentiles is necessary because the Jews themselves were not allowed to execute their death punishments and they gave him to the Romans and this preferred method of death for such criminals and outlaws and so on was crucifixion. All according to God's plan and all according to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus has made a curse for us that we might not have to bear the curse. That Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21, is made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There it is, his death, no mere death, no ordinary death, the one death that will be atonement. The one death never to be repeated in a bloody way or a figurative way or a sacramental way. One death for sin and sinners accomplished. It is finished on the cross. He died in our place, the substitute. The suffering one, my Jesus, your Jesus, sinners, Jesus, crucified, cursed for you, forsaken, whose suffering at the hands of God is the main thing. New suffering at the hands of men is just instrumental that he might suffer at the hands of God. Wrath. Wrath, righteous wrath, heaven venting on the sun, ever pleased with the sun, let's not forget that, but so working in the sun, this experience of death that he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And one commentator was pretty close to right. When he said that word, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, was one word away from blasphemy. Isn't that amazing? Then his resurrection. Here is predicted almost as a, an afterthought, and the third day he will rise again. But no afterthought. He rises. Why does he rise from the dead? How can that be? Well, because his death was the death of death. His death was this amazing willingness of the servant of the Lord to die for a people that God had chosen, who had fallen into sin, but are God's forever because they're loved with an everlasting love. By love, God made the worlds to show his love. He rises. Death will not hold him. And because he rises, there's this great right to life. 
for all of God's people for whom he died and who were given faith then to trust in him. So this is what Jesus taught. The message of his discipling now. The disciples have to get it. This is what he's saying. This is part of the discipleship. They've been told, starting around Matthew 18 or whatever, where all of this lessons in discipleship has begun and this whole wonderful um, these whole wonderful passages about what it is to follow Jesus. And now here, they've been told that it has to do with you're being married in the Lord and staying that way. You're being children to the Lord. You're bringing children to the Lord. They've been told that discipleship involves leaving everything, father and mothers and lands and everything for my sake. They're told by Jesus visiting with this rich ruler and the vi- ruler visiting with him that this is impossible with men, but only possible with God. They've been told all of these things, and now they're told that the cost of their discipleship is his own life for theirs. These are words of Jesus before the deed of Jesus. Note that. Before the deed of Jesus, these are words of Jesus that are needed by the disciples to edify them, to shore them up, to brace them for what will happen. They're not getting it yet, as we'll see, but these are words that they need to get. These are words, these are prophecies of the prophet. Pointing them to the scriptures, pointing them to the truth of heaven, to to the word of God that they need to hear. In the midst of all the words that they're going to hear, of the strange praises of hosannas on that day of his coming into Jerusalem the last time, and then all the other words that he's going to hear, especially at the end of his week of the lies of men, hear this word and take this word to heart. There's something here that I want to point out to you in light of the parallel text, especially about Jesus' position that I find fascinating and important for understanding the instruction of Jesus. Note here, Matthew 20, verse 17. Now, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. But look at Mark, Mark chapter 10. Verse 32 says, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. But note that. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them. He was apart from them little ways ahead, maybe a long ways. And they were amazed. And as they followed him, they were afraid. Then he took them aside, probably to separate these 12 from a throng that was probably going at that time to Jerusalem to keep the Passover so he could speak to them in privacy. 
I'm not sure if Luke adds anything to that, Luke chapter 18, but that's the other parallel passage. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, going up, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. No, there's nothing, there's nothing there of that except the reaction of the disciples. We'll speak of that presently. But here's what I'm finding here, and I think we could find here and not just invent as some exegetical sleight of hand here, the position of Jesus. The prophecy of Jesus is, of course, the center of this instruction here. But there's a position of Jesus. There's the disciples. They're walking behind him, and as we read, they're amazed, and later on we'll read in Luke, they're they're not getting it. But Jesus is ahead of them. Is he walking faster? Can't keep up with him? What's Jesus showing by walking ahead of them? And why are they so amazed? And it seems that there's a connection between where he's walking and not with them, them, and not just whispering into their ears and so on, but walking ahead of them. What's going on here? I find here, beloved, as I find in the rest of the scriptures, and so we can be assured that this message that I give to you tonight is true. Resolution. Jesus is going ahead. Jesus, of whom it is determined, he shall go. The decree of God says so. The word of God says so. Is himself going ahead. He is determined in his will, in his consciousness, in his love to go and to do the will of the Father. Now, aside from the words that he gives of his death and resurrection, I submit to your attention that the attitude that Jesus seems to be showing here of this resolution is a great message. He's showing not by his cowering, Something about this cross to him. Oh, he'll tremble in the garden, but not now. He's showing by his marching ahead, his soldiering on, though he knows, nobody else knows what's to happen to him, that he is a servant of the Father. He comes, and in the volume of the book, it's written of him, therefore I go, he says. I love God. I love God's people, all that God has given to me. I'm going to die for them. And as he predicted in John 10, no one takes his life, I lay it down. So that's what he's doing. And here, we probably read of something in the book of Hebrews coming to pass here, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. These were happy legs. We say that in the most reverent sense of the word. This was a happy man. This was a joyous man in heart because in the will of God, he was seeking to do the will of God. And he wasn't this first Calvinist who was one of the frozen chosen. He was a living Messiah. Determined it was of him, and now he's determined with his will with his love, with this passion, this compassion, this heat about him, this fervency about him, 
whereby pretty soon he'll overthrow the tables of the money changers. He'll take on the Pharisees and the scribes. He'll be silent before Pilate. He'll announce his coming on clouds of heaven. He'll breathe a word when he says, I am he, and announces who he is in the garden and a whole mob that comes to take him will fall flat. What a word. What a willing servant. We read of this willingness of Jesus in different places in the Bible. Isaiah 50, the Lord God has opened my ear might be a reference to his putting a mark there of a slave who would willingly be a slave for life. He's opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting for the Lord. God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. You see, something of the Messiah in his countenance is his resolution, his step, and they can't keep up with him, says that this man means business. And he's teaching us now, if we are to be on the king's business, we must be locked and step with him. Have this kind of heart. It's not just a theological lesson here, though it is. Purest, deepest theology there ever was. It's a lesson on reality, on the ground in your life, in my life. Psalm 40, another place where this resolution of the sun is indicated. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you've opened. There's that opening of the ears. This willing servanthood. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. He loves God's will. And even though it be the death of the cross, and even though it be that he's rejected of men, he will please his God, his Father, and your God, and your Father, and my God, and my Father, for Jesus' sake. So find here a, a nuance position of Jesus that goes along with the prophecy and that's really how we need to teach here a prophesying of the word of God and a, an attitude of humility and grace and zeal that's what you want isn't it because you believe these words of Jesus and you believe that everything about him was the perfect uh, Messiah revealed for us and you want to follow him. And you're not the ones who say, well, it doesn't matter how we follow, just that we believe the creed here. 
Just do the right thing and say the right words, spit them back to the catechumen teacher, we're set. No. Jesus is calling heartfelt believers to be heartfelt followers. That's you and that's me. Rebuking those who hear, tonight even, who've only been half-hearted and half-resolute and turning maybe back like Lot's wife and not seeking to have your eye on Jesus even though he's speaking of the cross and a resurrection life that does not give you the liberty to party the way you want. There's a power, finally, of this message, and there needs to be a power in the reception of it. As I said, Mark teaches us that these disciples were amazed, and they, they who followed, they were afraid, they were amazed, like in consternation, in bewilderment, and they were upset. And they were afraid, afraid. Often we find the, the disciples afraid, whether it's in the boat, in the storm, or wherever else it is, they're, they're afraid, they're fearful. And Jesus would say to them, fear not, little flock. Luke tells us this too. This is striking. After Jesus announces this is what will be accomplished, his death and resurrection, they understood, Luke 18, 34, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Seems to be a judgment of God upon them, hiding truth from them. I believe, though, it's a mercy of God, at least upon the 11, chastisement of God, whatever it is, a a a God and Father keeping them from things that they couldn't really understand at this time and they would need the Holy Spirit to understand by and by. The disciples were lacking understanding. These things were hidden from them. They were amazed. They were perplexed. They were afraid. They needed this sermon, this short sermon of discipleship and what it involved what Messiah it was they were following. They needed to hear about the blood. They needed to hear about the grace of God at Jerusalem and the righteousness and the grace of God meeting together. And they needed to see that Savior loving God all the way to death. But they're afraid. They're slow of heart to believe what Jesus is saying. Beloved, we need power from on high, don't we? And in a way, we're no different. The alarming thing is we're on the other side of the cross and the other side of the resurrection. Here, it's just predicted. It's a future event six or so days away. 
Good Friday's not yet come. Good Sunday's not yet come. But now it's come. And now the Holy Spirit is poured out. And now we're given to hear Jesus' sermon. And we're not given, however, to be casual about it and hear from our pew and hear as we speak from this, this pulpit. We're those, if we're to be discipled by this matter and this manner of this man, Jesus, and his teaching, need to be in the Spirit ourselves. And to have the Holy Spirit that he sends out, that he says he will send out to teach you all things concerning me. And we have that Spirit, beloved. Remember in our study of Revelation, we're listening to what the Spirit says to the churches. And the Spirit says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what he says to the churches. We need the Holy Spirit. The presence of Jesus, who's no longer with us in the body, he's at the right hand of God. And we need the grace of God's spirit, and we need the truth. We need to pray, and to preach, and to partake of the supper together, because we're so weak, and we're just on the way. We haven't arrived. Beloved people of God, We've heard the mor this morning the great salvation, the great Savior, and the calling. Neglect not such a great salvation. As we rise up from the table and we've heard the great master sermon maker, Jesus Christ, we've seen his matter. He's, he's going ahead and he's going to go alone and no one can go with him, really. But here's an example to follow. And here's an example of his own discipleship, learning the things that he needed to learn by his obedience and his suffering, death, and so on. Oh, and we say it's not possible. I'm ashamed. And I just trip down the path. And I don't walk or run as I should. But beloved, this sermon is for you who need to hear that God is not ashamed to call you a son. And the Savior is not ashamed to call you brother, sister. I love you. Hear my word. Carry on. Be discipled. It's hard. But what else would you rather be in life? What path would you rather be on than the path to glory? The path of sacrifice? The path that's despised, to be sure. But the path where Jesus has tread before that you might follow him who went where no man can go to the death of the cross. And it's a good place to be. That works faith. Believest thou 
this. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, the people of God here with such eager ears, such willing hearts, who need more and more to have the ears of Jesus and the heart of Jesus and the resolution of Jesus to know the message of Jesus and to stand hard by the cross of Calvary for forgiveness, to know love, to know the power from on high, to witness in this world of the life from above through the one who came to be with us here below who is now at your right hand. God, we pray, cause your kingdom to come as we pray, come quickly. And as the word of God has free course, and works in the hearts of the people to establish and firm up the kingdom in their hearts. Dismiss us with your favor and in your fellowship together. Amen.